is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to the show, folks. Get ready for one explosive show tonight. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. Kick back in your comfy chair for the next two hours. We are going to bring you a riveting show, an explosive show. Globally today, folks, as I look across the world, many people look at the Middle East and say, wow, what a mess. I think the hotspot we should all examine and look at is what's happening in the Ukraine. Very quickly, that could escalate to a 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Very quickly, we could find ourselves in a nuclear standoff. Now, let's go back to the 60s, height of the Cold War. What if I was to tell you that on a certain two occasions in March 1967, At a nuclear missile site in Great Falls, Montana, 10 nuclear missiles became non-operational. Now, what's even more ominous in this story is reports of UFOs had been flooding in all day. Now, our guest tonight, Robert Salas, his book is called Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon, How World Governments Have Conspired to Conceal Humanity's Biggest Secret. He was there. He was there deep below the ground in a secured Echo Flight Launch Control Center, just like you see on the old 60s nuclear Holocaust movies, folks. He was down there at the control center. Now he was just getting ready for his shift, and all this took place. Could you imagine having that responsibility at your fingertips and 10 nuclear missiles become non-operational. Wow. Stand by for an explosive show, folks. Robert Salas, I want to welcome you to Night Fright for the very first time and most definitely not the last time. Welcome, sir. Uh, Thank you, Brent. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Robert, is there a a microphone near you that you could move closer to your your face? Well, How's that? Is that any better? It is better, actually. Yeah, it's proximity. Okay. Okay, that's great. If you can get as close to the microphone on your laptop as possible, or if you want, um, I can call you back and we can do it via phone if you're too uncomfortable. No, I'm fine. Uh, okay, let's fire away. Okay, so there you were. You know, you just graduated. You were, you've only been in the Air Force for three years. 1964, you graduated. Now, first of all, what possessed you to take on this role to go down inside a nuclear missile silo? Well, um, yeah, I, I had had other assignments, and um, 
Actually, I volunteered for Vietnam uh, when I went to the personnel office. They didn't have a an assignment for me, so they uh, kind of put me on hold. Then a week later, they called and said they had uh, this opportunity to uh, go into missiles uh, and also earn my master's degree in engineering. Uh, so I thought that was a good deal. And um, and so I went ahead and accepted. And even though about a week after that, they had a assignment for me in Vietnam, but I had already uh, decided to go into missiles. Uh, yeah, so in 1966, I uh, finished my training and was assigned to Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. Um, and, uh, quickly got, um, qualified on crew duty with, um, um, Fred Mywald. We were both lieutenants at the time. Uh, but I just want to correct one thing. We were, uh, we were an Oscar flight, not Echo flight. Oh, my mistake. I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah, I would, I was mistaken with that too. As a matter of fact, when I first uh, uh, heard about the um, the incident being uh, publicly released, or uh, it seemed to me uh, this was 1994. So I'm backtracking a little bit, but uh, between 67 and 94, of course, I was uh, couldn't talk about this. Uh, we had signed a non-disclosure statement. But in 94, I picked up a book called Above Top Secret by Timothy Good, and uh, just happened to turn to page 301 of that book. <laughs> and uh, there's a short paragraph talking about uh, missiles going down during a UFO sighting. And uh, I got pretty excited because uh, they were describing my uh, event very, very closely to what happened uh, at my event. And so I thought that was where I was. I was at Echo Flight. But as it turned out, uh, Echo Flight shutdown happened about eight days before the Oscar flight, which is where I was. Um, what was the difference between the two? Was it geographical location? Yeah, very simply, uh, Echo Flight is about 30 miles or so um, northwest of Oscar Flight. Oscar is near the little town of Roy, Montana. That's about 100 miles east of Great Falls. I see. Can you walk us through that day? Uh, sure. Great. Yeah, so I the- presume you got up and it just started as a regular old day? Regular day, we uh, normally have... Um, uh, a briefing and uh, you know they tell us what's going on in the field uh, sometimes they've got maintenance programs going on where they're tinkering with the missiles um, but rarely uh, is there more than one missile that's uh, brought down for maintenance um, and again each each flight has 10 missiles so uh, I, on this day we were at Oscar flight we relieved the crew uh, went through our procedures and, um, and sometime in the evening, um, what we do down there is, uh, we, we, one of us has to be on full alert status or wide awake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm so thinking that's not a bad thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's 24 hour duty. So right. we had a little cot down there. And, uh, so one of us was taking a rest break. 
So uh, just hang on a second, Robert. When you go down, do you go down for longer than an eight-hour shift? Yeah, like I said, it's 24 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, 24-hour shift. So um, uh, sometime, and again, we don't have any windows down there. Right, sure. And we didn't, we didn't have any video cameras either. So people have asked, uh, did you have video up there? We didn't. At that time, this was 1967. And um, uh, so we're 60 or so feet underground. We go down by an elevator and then go through a, a special procedure to enter the actual launch control center where the, all the controls are. They had no controls upstairs. Um, so they couldn't have, uh, you know, instituted some kind of a hoax. At any rate... Um, Sometime in the evening hours, and the reason I know it's the evening, because the guard calls down and he says that there's been some strange lights in the sky. They can see it in the, in the dark sky. These are uh, unusual lights. They're flying very fast. They make, make unusual turns and um, stop on a dime, reverse course, etc. I even said, you mean like UFOs? <laughs> because we had had... You know, like you mentioned, we'd had reports in the newspapers um, for the past week or so before that <laughs> of, um, you know, people reporting UFOs or sightings. Um, and um, so he said, well, sir, we can't explain it. You know, we just want to report it. Um, so I said, okay, hung up. Uh, about a minute or so later, maybe five minutes, I uh, can't remember, uh, he calls back, and this time he's screaming into the phone. He's uh, frightened, clearly frightened. Um, said he had all the guards out. Uh, we had about six guards up there. Um, or weapons drawn, uh, pointing at uh, this glowing red object. Uh, he said it was a um, pulsating red-orange oval-shaped uh, light. Basically, it was a very bright light. He could barely make out some sort of structure within the light. It was uh, oval-shaped, uh, but he couldn't get any more specific than that. Um, and he was scared to death, wanted me to tell him what to do. And this, this thing was hovering right above the front gate. Yeah, just sitting there above the front gate. Uh, but it was massive, according to them. It was very large. Uh, so it could have been anywhere from, you know, 40, 50 feet, uh, something like that. Uh, at any rate, uh, this was a shocker. I, you know, I didn't quite know what to think, um, except that it seemed like we were under some sort of a possible attack. In other words, uh, something or someone was trying to gain entry. And so I, I just told him, um, don't let anything in the front gate. You know, use whatever force you need to, but don't let anything pass the front gate. Uh, I later heard rumors, uh, and, and this is from another uh, source, another guard, uh, only recently, actually, that uh, one of the guards did fire his weapon at it uh, to no avail. Um, but then he said, one of my guards just got injured, and so he hung up the phone. So, uh, 
about that time, I was uh, pretty perplexed, didn't know what was going on up there. I looked, uh, happened to look over at my board just to make sure everything was um, in good shape because we had a display panel that had the, the status of all the missiles, and they were all green. So I, I go over to awake my commander and start to tell him about the phone calls. And all of a sudden, we get all kinds of bells and whistles go off, klaxons and horns. And we look over at the board, and all the missiles went down one by one, all ten of them. And this was within minutes of, uh, or within a minute of uh, my hanging up the phone to the guard. So the object was still up there when this happened. Um, so we go through our procedures. Uh, we have a checklist. Uh, we we queried the system. In other words, we had a a method of trying to find out what what was wrong with the missiles because they were all in no go status. They they had all shut down. Um, and basically, the messages we were getting back were guidance and control system failure. So uh, we reported, uh, asked for you know maintenance to come out and and uh, bring our missiles back up online. Uh, and that's when uh, Fred Mywald, my commander, turned to me and said, the same thing happened at another flight. Now, I remember that so clearly, him turning to me and saying that. Uh, and I thought he meant the same thing had happened that evening. So when I wrote my first book, which is Faded Giant, um, I report in there that the Echo and Oscar flight went down the same night. But as it turns out, I, at about that time, I found out that uh, at the time I wrote my book, there finally got it published, um, self-published. Um, I I was in contact with another witness who said, um, uh, well, when I, I talked to Fred Mywald, actually, and, and cleared it all up, he meant to say the same thing happened a week earlier at another flight. And that's when Echo went down. So we, we finally established the dates of the Echo flight shut down and the Oscar flight shut down. Echo went down March 16th, 1967, under similar circumstances, very similar. Um, and I can tell you about that in a minute. But uh, sure. uh, uh, the Oscar flight went down March 24th, 1967. Um and, and we verified that date uh, in a couple of ways, uh, but mainly through uh, the maintenance people that went out there uh, verified that the date that, that all of Oscar flights missiles went down, and the date was March 24th, because there was another uh, well-documented UFO incident uh, around Great Falls, Montana, uh, on the same day, and he remembers that. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Did your comms go down at all? No. Well, uh, let me, let me just clarify that. Um, we had a couple of, of, uh, security lights go off at the sites. Uh, we had proximity, uh, warning system so that if something got into the, uh, uh, where the launch facilities are the uh, the missile where the missiles are actually located are called launch facilities and if somebody 
try to enter those facilities. Then we got uh, these warning lights in the, in the capsule. And so we had two of these uh, missile sites had warning lights. So we sent guards out there to check it out. This was after the UFO left had shut down all our missiles. Uh, but we sent guards out there to check on the launch facilities that had these um, incursion lights. And when they got out there, uh, they saw UFOs again. They reported this back to the um, uh, flight security controller, the main guard upstairs. And and all the way back, they did lose, at, at, when, when, when they approached the site, UFOs were there, they did lose radio contact. So it did affect their radios. Uh, these were UHF, VHF, I'm sorry, VHF, UHF radios. So, um, yeah, we did have that problem. They, but we didn't lose comm in the capsule itself because we had, uh, we had telephone comm with, uh, with the main base. Were you able to contact the central command and let them be apprised of what was happening? Because we have to remember, folks, this is 1967. This is the height of the Cold War. An attack could come, a surprise attack could come at any time. This is what these fellows were trained for, is counterattack. And, I mean, my God, when something, you've got a proximity alert going off, you've got comms going down in the field, and on top of that, you, for no reason whatsoever, your whole system shuts down. What did Central Command say when you contacted them? Well, Central, by Central Command, we had command posts uh, back at Mouston Air Force Base, which, again, I, we reported to command posts. And um, probably our, we also had a squadron command post, so we, had, we reported to both those areas. And uh, like I said, the only thing I, feedback I heard was the same thing happened. Uh, before, uh, I do know that uh, when when I investigated the Echo Flight incident, which I can tell you about in a minute, mm-hmm. uh, SAC headquarters got involved. In other words, they sent a team from Strategic Air Command headquarters uh, out to Nelson Air Force Base and interviewed uh, the two principals in that, the commander and deputy. And so, and and, and one of the um, the key pieces of documentation we have is a telegram from SAC headquarters to um, quite a few agencies, including um, uh, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, that um, this was a grave, uh, a quote from it, grave concern because they could not explain the shutdown. You know, this is not supposed to happen. What did SAC, what was SAC's report? Was there a conclusion? Well, uh, that's a good question. The, uh, the Air Force did a, uh, a classified or a secret study of what occurred and that study continued, uh, and again, this is from sources within the military, c- continued at least through 1972. This happened in 67. So at least for five years, it was trying to figure out what happened at uh, Echo and Oscar. Uh, there was also a civilian team headed by Boeing that did an investigation, and they looked at 
anything you can think of, whether it was um, power surge or computer failures, uh, things like that, even psychological things having to do with the crews. Um, they they did a very thorough job, and I, I have correspondence from the team leader from that Boeing team. This was a Boeing team um, that said they could not find any uh, pertinent or relative uh, uh, relevant cause for uh, this to occur. What would have to, uh, let me just give you the basics of what would have hap- had to happen. Uh, this object or something uh, would have had to send a signal, a specific signal, through 60 feet of earthen concrete, and then penetrate uh, triply shielded shielded from EMI or electromagnetic interference cables, triply shielded cables, which went to each individual missile, 10 separate missiles. And this signal would have had to upset the um, what's called the logic coupler of the guidance and control system on each missile separately. So that's what needed to happen for what did happen. <laughs> so that, that, this is, uh, of course, the main reason that I consider this uh, these objects of uh, extraterrestrial origin because... You know, I was very familiar with um, um, all the equipment we had in the Air Force at the time, and um, uh, we had nothing that, that could even remotely uh, could do anything like that. I was going to ask you if there was anything to your knowledge in existence at the time that could do that, but you just answered that. The next question I had for you was the president notified. Would he be notified in a situation like this? Um, hard to say. Mm. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, well, we can go into this a little bit more later. But the um, what was happening at the time was that there was uh, con- the Condon investigation was ongoing, mm-hmm. and uh, the Congress had already ordered the Air Force to. Uh, do a so-called scientific investigation of the UFO phenomenon and report back to the Congress. Now, whether word of this got back to the president, I don't know. I do know it got back to SAG headquarters and chief of SAC, which then I think, if I'm not mistaken, was, um, uh, gosh, what was his name? Was General it- hey, Curtis LeMay. LeMay was still there? I thought he had retired uh, in 65. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I, I know he was at my graduation. He gave the uh, graduation uh, talk at the Air Force Academy in 1964, but uh, he may have retired before 67. So I, at any rate, SAC headquarters didn't know about it. So whether or not they sent it off to the president, I don't know. Okay. Let's, folks, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm riveted to this seat. I mean, to find out about this all these years later, I lived through the 60s. And, uh, you know, duck and cover, that was the drill in those days, and there was no way that that was going to protect you. But this was the kind of intense threat that we were up against all through the 60s. And um, 
in October 1962, let's not forget that there was a nuclear standoff. Hello? Hello. Are you still there, my friend? Are you still there? Yes, sir. Can you okay, hear me? Okay, I lost you. Nope. Uh, nuclear standoff in 1962 over the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, fans of this show will know that I interviewed Ted Sorensen, who was JFK's speechwriter, and he's the guy that JFK tasked to write that letter to get Khrushchev to back down. And Ted walks us right through the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close we were. And how close were we? Well, Jackie had called the president, Ted told me, to bring the two kids home because they all wanted to die together the next day. That's how close we were. Now imagine if the UK, if the Ukraine ramps up today, folks, and Mrs. Obama calls the president to bring the two girls home because they all want to die together. That's how close we were. And we're talking about another incident here that I had no idea about, one that took place in 1967. There was two of them. And one took place March 16th, 1967. That was called Echo. The other one, March 24th, 1967, that was called Oscar. And that's the one we're looking at today with a first-person witness, a fellow who was there deep below the ground. His book identified the UFO phenomenon. And honest to God, folks, we're going to get there. (laughs) But I'm on the edge of my seat because the Cold War is something that has fascinated me all my life and how we survived it. How world governments have conspired to conceal humanity's biggest secret, and, of course, as always, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. And tonight's a great night to settle in. Lots of time left if you're still joining us. Okay. Can we talk about Echo and the similarities between what they went through and what you experienced with Oscar? Uh, certainly. Uh, Echo Flight, um, uh, Walter Fiegel was on duty. He was the deputy commander, and Eric uh, Carlson was the commander. Uh, Walt was on duty. He, uh, when uh, one of his missiles went down, he happened to have uh, crews out in the sites that had stayed overnight, uh, because they were uh, going to work on on two of the missiles uh, the next morning. Uh, this was uh, so. This was early in the morning, and uh, so Beagle, when he when the missile goes down, Beagle uh, calls out to the site and says, um, uh, "You're supposed to contact me before shutting down the missile, so that I'll know uh, you're starting your work." And um, they fellow out there says, well, we haven't done anything. We just woke up, and by the way, there's a UFO above us. And same thing at the other side. And as he said that, all 10 of his missiles shut down, all 10. So uh, boom, boom, boom. Within seconds, uh, all those missiles shut down. And again, same uh, query, guidance and control system failure. Now, just to uh, give you a little bit more about that, uh, the guidance system is an inertial guidance system. It it had to be um, um, targeted. In other words, the system, uh, the each missile had to be targeted separately. My latest book, um, 
uh, about the time when, um, and this was 1969, actually, um, uh, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is another funny, not funny, but uh, uh, it's another part of the story. I was directed to go back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to finish my master's degree, even though I could have finished it at Palestine. Uh, but anyway, in 69, I was at Wright Patterson Air Force Base and uh, ran into an old Air Force Academy buddy of mine, and uh, he uh, said they had a job for me, but uh, I said I was there just to get my degree. I wasn't there for another assignment. And uh, so he said, well, we'll talk to you later. And then uh, and then, uh, a little after that, I was ordered to report to the base psychiatrist's office. And, uh, I had not uh, complained about any mental problems. Uh, I didn't know what that was about. But I showed up in um, very strange little area where the base psychiatrist was. And, uh, the airman, after I waited for a little while, told me to come back and see the base psychiatrist. And I said, no, I'm, I don't know why I should be doing that. Uh, watch you have the psychiatrist come out and tell me what this is all about. So I refused to go back to into his office. <laughs> and he comes back about five minutes later, uh, this airman, and says, well, you can go now, sir. Uh, what I think could have happened is that uh, they may have brought up the UFO incident and got me to make statements about that, and then they would have had something to hold over the, uh, um, to incriminate uh, you, so to speak. To incriminate me, so to speak, um, and uh, ruin my career and use that as leverage. Um, anyway, that's the only time I think I was they tried to pressure me, I think, in, in some way. But I, I've never been threatened by this. And I think partly because um, uh, when I finally did come forward and talk about this, I had quite a bit of evidence to back me up. Uh, because I had gone through the FOIA system and, and uh, retrieved documents. Uh, and once I told people that I knew that the Echo Flight had been declassified, that incident be declassified, uh, they started talking to me. Um, mm. So I got witnesses supporting uh, what I've told you um, that came forward even though they shouldn't have. Uh, ordinarily, they wouldn't have talked, um, but they came forward because, uh, you know, this uh, echo flight had been declassified. Um, so that there was a, a series of events that uh, were in my favor, and um, the, so the Air Force never made an issue of the fact that Technically, even to this day, I'm in violation of the uh, of the non-disclosure statement that I signed because um, we've never received any official documents about Oscar flight uh, being shut down. Um, Was there ever any official Air Force or SAC or any official report that said this was the direct reason for what happened? There is a statement in uh, one of the documents we have is a... Um, Wait, don't tell me. They said it was a weather balloon. 
just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, all right. There was a statement in one of the reports that we received under FOIA, this um, uh, unit history report. And uh, there's just one little sentence there that says, the rumors of UFOs um, have been disproven. Mm-hmm. Rumors of UFOs over echo flight have been disproven. Uh, you know, rumor, I'm sorry, rumors of UFOs over echo flight during the shutdowns have been disproven. Now, um, how do you disprove a rumor? Precisely. They don't go into any detail about that, how you, how they disproved that, because they certainly did not interview or officially, uh, in writing, uh, say they interviewed the crews or that sort of thing, because there were plenty of witnesses that saw these UFOs over the sites when they were during the shutdown. I, I still can't get over it. You know, um, there was, there was a lot of bases up here, uh, during the Cold War on, uh, the Dew Line. And uh, we used to launch aircraft all the time to chase the UFOs that used to fly over radar bases and stuff, thinking that they could be Russian bombers. And, and um, you know, they would just take off and, and go in, a, in an opposite direction, and there was no way you could keep up with them. And yet a lot of these fellows are, are only talking about what took place in the 60s and the 50s now because I guess they figure, you know, what are they going to do to them all these years later? But I also know because of the proximity I am to the Canadian Forces bases here and uh, what some of the pilots have seen, and they just won't talk about it on record. But, they'll, you know, they see me, they recognize me from the show, and they'll come and say, hey, you know what? But I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't tell you my name because, you know, they're still active. So this is a big problem, the ostracization. It is a big problem. It's the ridicule factor, uh, you know, Basically, people want to keep their jobs. Uh, they don't want to be laughed at by, uh, you know, their fellow employees or anybody else and uh, keep their reputation. And, uh, no, they don't want to talk about this. Nobody really, um, uh, I mean, <laughs> most people don't like talking about this. No kidding. No kidding. Uh, folks, we're coming up to break in a few minutes, but I just want to tell you who we're speaking with. Uh, Robert Salas, don't go anywhere. We have well over an hour left when we come back. Uh, the book is called Unidentified the UFO Phenomenon, How World Governments, and we're going right there right after the break. Cabal people, how world governments have conspired to conceal humanity's biggest secret of all. And uh, the book is called Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon, another book, Faded Giant, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. That will take you to a place where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Get that coffee going. Get that tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. I hope you're kicking back in your most comfy chair. Relax. This is your time. And Robert's taking us on an incredible true story. How often, if ever, have you had the opportunity to speak with somebody who was actually deep below the surface in a missile Cyrus silo? Uh, Robert, there's the music. We'll be back in six minutes. Can you hang on? Uh, Sure, I'll be back in six minutes. See you soon. Take care, my friend. 
Welcome back, folks. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Welcome back to Night Fight. If you're just joining us, we have a full hour left with an amazing guest. Robert Salas is joining us tonight. His book is called Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon, How World Governments Have Conspired to Conceal Humanity's Biggest Secret. He also has another book out called Faded Giant, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover and order the book from the comfort of your own armchair tonight. We've been talking about Roger uh, Robert's first-person witness experience going back to March 24th, 1967, when he was deep below the surface inside a control center controlling 10 nuclear missiles, just like you see on the 60s, uh, the old 60s um, nuclear holocaust movies. And uh, he was down there, he was in charge, and he was second in command, and 10 nuclear missiles went offline, non-operational. Just prior to them going non-operational, a series of phone calls had originated topside below where there was unidentified lights hovering overhead. They had pulled out all their arms to defend themselves. This is the guards up topside, and they had contacted Robert down below. And we're talking about all the similarities between another event that took place just prior to that called Echo, and that was on March 16th, 1967 as well. Just a couple of more questions for Robert, and welcome back, Robert. Thanks for sticking with us. You bet. Um, oh, where are they? Uh, now, how long were you able to sustain yourself underground in the event of a nuclear attack? Oh, um you know, we had emergency rations down there and things like that. Uh, uh, we probably could have lasted about a, a couple of weeks, maybe. If we're lucky. You think that would? Then we had to. Then we had to. We would have had to dig our way out. <laughs> so it was pretty much a suicide, I guess. Is that? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because I'm just trying to think where the air would come from, too. Uh, now, was there yeah. a, a secure place for your family to go? No. No way. No, I mean, uh, how, how would you uh, yeah, find a secure place uh, in a nuclear war? I don't uh, think there is one. You know, that's what Sorensen told me. Um, I had mentioned before, folks, that uh, Ted Sorensen, JFK speechwriter, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was the one that wrote the letter to Khrushchev. Uh, JFK tasked him with that, and he virtually saved the world with it. Uh, he had said there was no nuclear-proof bunker below the White House in those days and uh, that's why Jackie had called to bring the kids home so they could all die together because the missiles and Khrushchev um, was fearing that uh, Castro, because Castro was pushing for a first strike against the United States he wanted to launch the missiles and Khrushchev backed down uh, thank God he didn't go with Castro we thought Castro had lost his mind but that's what Castro was pushing for, was the first strike against the United States. So that scenario was very, very real, that everybody was going to die and a nuclear holocaust would be started because once the missiles are launched, then according to MAD, mutual assured destruction, 
the missiles will be launched in retaliation. So that's the end of the world. It's the end of the species for quite a few years. Quite, quite yeah. a few. Absolutely. Yeah. Br- sure. uh, Brent, I'm, I'm glad you're making this point because uh, uh, my one of my main motivators at this point in my life is to emphasize the fact that we have to try to abolish all nuclear weapons. Yes, sir. Uh, as you know, uh, or you may know, uh, the situation with, uh, with Russia right now in Ukraine yeah. is, is worse. And, uh, Mr. Putin is all, all but said that, you know, we, we have nuclear weapons. I think he pointed that out to the press the other day that, uh, uh remember we still have nuclear weapons and they certainly do. There's, there's still nine nations, nuclear nations in the world, uh, and many of which are uh, un- un- unstable governments or governments that are more willing to use force. Uh, um, so we still have a very serious situation with regard to nukes. Well, we know Pakistan has them. Do you think Iran yeah. has developed them? Uh, I don't. No, I don't think they've developed a, a bomb per se, but they certainly know how to enrich uranium and probably could get above the 20% level, which is what it would take to make bomb grade uh, material um, very quickly. And um, so I think if they had to, or if they wanted to, they could probably get uh, weapons grade material uh, fairly quickly. That's frightening. That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Israel is said we know, in, if yeah, that's Israel the case. Yeah, Israel has already said that, you know, that if, you know, these talks break down, uh, very likely uh, Israel may just decide to bomb uh, Iran's nuclear facilities, and then uh, who knows what will happen after that. What a bloody mess. What a, but you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm very, very concerned is Putin's attitude. Um, right. And I'm, I'm hoping it's more posturing than anything else, because let's not forget, two folks, Kennedy was dealing with Khrushchev, and uh, just several years before Khrushchev and Kennedy were in that standoff, the nuclear standoff, Khrushchev had taken his shoe off at the United Nations and slammed it against the podium, saying, we will bury you, we will bury mm-hmm. you. So that mm-hmm. wasn't such a staple character either, with nuclear weapons under his belt. So we've got to be very, very prudent how we're dealing with this. What's your opinion of Mr. Obama's uh, resolution so far? Uh, frankly, I think he's approaching it in the right way. In other words, he's he, he stated that, he, that they're still evaluating the situation uh, and, and they want to get um, you know partners in taking action. Uh, so they're, they're, they're talking about, you know, what action to take against, uh, Russia right now and, and also what action to take against, against the, uh, Islamic terrorists. So, uh, you know, I applaud him for not just jumping in and say, hey, let's, let's go fight this guy and uh, use military force. Um, uh, you know, we, we've got to be careful on how we deal with, um, with uh, especially a man like Putin, uh, yeah. and uh, confront him militarily, and we've got to do it as in an alliance with other nations. You know, and that's the same thing, Sorensen. I'll go back to Sorensen again. He said this is how Kennedy resolved it too. He built an alliance, and mm-hmm. 
when you're dealing with another society, this is very important as to opposed to dealing with uh, Osama bin Laden or another terrorist group that doesn't really care if they live or die. But when you're dealing with a society like Russia that's industrialized, they do care about public opinion. They do care what other nations are saying, and they do care when we put sanctions on them. That is a solid way of dealing with the situation because once you draw that line in the sand and it's crossed, if you back down after that, then it's just going to be one country after another after another the same way that Hitler did, the domino effect. So, right, yeah, right. I, I agree with you completely on this one. Okay, let's go back to your book. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. Mm-hmm. The Cabal. Now, would this be... Would this be an area, see I'm looking for ways that Russia, the same way that that, uh, the Kennedy administration tried to do, they tried to look for ways to work with Russia. Would this be an area, UFOs, that Russia and the West could work on together? Uh, Yes, I think they have been working on it together. Um, uh, Let's back up a little bit. Uh, You probably know the, the story of Wilbert Smith. Yes, sir. Canadian. Yeah. Canadian. And, uh, uh, he, he claimed that, uh, very definitely there was, um, an organization, a, a secret group, he called it, uh, led by, um, uh, I can't think of his name now, uh, <laughs> uh, but led by a U.S. scientist, um, who had actually, uh, run the scientific program, uh, for the United oh, States yes. in World War II. Yeah, I know what um, you mean. Yeah, I can't think of his yeah. name now either. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, so and and they actually wanted Canada to work with this secret group. Um, uh, so that right there is a clear indication that uh, they were trying to get other countries because obviously the UFOs were not just isolated to the United States; they're being seen all over the world, and. Uh, and so who, who better to work with this secret group in the United States but uh, groups uh, from uh, other nations that were uh, associated with the intelligence community. So, And I, I have it on uh, another source from, you know, I visited many foreign countries um, uh, in, in speaking. I've, I've spoken about this for about 20 years now. And uh, I can tell you that I've, I've talked to other military people who have, have been in meetings that, that were uh, with with U.S. intelligence people that have told them in no uncertain terms that their reports to uh, all the significant UFO sightings uh, to them. So I do think that the United States is in the lead, but I certainly don't have any specifics on that. But in the lead in this cabal, which I call a UFO cabal, uh, probably um, integrating and uh, communicating with other intelligence agencies in other countries, and probably within Russia also. Um, now, uh, the, the ETs, I'll call them ETs, the phenomenon. Sure. Yeah. Is that malevolent? Are they... Are they malevolent? Yeah, malevolent. Are they bad guys? (laughs) Where's my cough? 
Well, there, um, uh, that's a subject for uh, debate, of course. Um, in my case, or in 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 the other, uh, uh, again, I list uh, quite a few cases where UFOs were involved in, in the missile area and over nuclear weapon sites, over nuclear plants, uh, energy plants. Uh, uh, where they simply flew over, um, maybe shown a beam of light on the nuclear weapons and then flew off. Mm. And I think uh, that activity is simply to shine a light on our nuclear program and, 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 and try to encourage us to get rid of our nuclear weapons, which I'm absolutely for. Uh, so to me, that's more of a benevolent, if you could think, uh, think mm-hmm. of it that way. Uh, than wanting us to uh, survive, our civilization to survive. Uh, again, they did not damage our nuclear weapons. As far as I know, they have not attacked us in any way, although there are probably instances, uh, let's say, during the 1952 uh, flap over Washington, D.C., where uh where some pilots claim that they they were attacked, or uh, and of course there have been cases where uh, it's, uh, pilots in pursuit of these UFOs uh, may have gone down uh, under strange circumstances. So, but again, this, so this is a subject for debate as to whether or not they're malevolent or not. Now. Uh, Associated with this phenomenon, and part of this phenomenon is the abduction phenomenon. Precisely. Which I, which I also talk about in my book. Um, um, and so we could also we could look at that and say, well, they're they're kidnapping humans, they're they're making doing experiments on humans, um, and nobody wants that. But and so. However, if you look at it from their perspective, they may be doing something that they think might be helpful to us uh, in some way. So, again, this is an argument that goes back and forth. I I still have this argument with my wife as to whether or not uh, these guys are malevolent or benevolent. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Have you spoken with folks who have been abducted? Well, you're speaking to one right now. Please tell us this. Yeah, this is also in my book. Um, right. And the reason the reason I came forward with this is because I could uh, no longer avoid the reality of it, and I also wanted to make sure this that this part of the phenomenon is um, is considered uh, because it is very much. Uh, a part of the phenomenon. I'll, I'll tell you my story very briefly, as much as I know about it. Yes, um, in 1985, I was, um, and this is before I went public on my on the other UFO incident. Uh, 1985, I was uh, living in Manhattan Beach, California, over here, and uh, with my wife, two small children, in a particular house that I remember. Uh, Excuse me. And sometime in the evening, I wake up to see uh, a bluish colored light 
uh, seemingly coming from our living room. Uh, I don't know what woke me up, but anyway, I, I see the there's a light, a strange light in our living room, and uh, I turn to my wife and I say, um, uh, you know, there's a there's a light out there. I'm going to get up and investigate. And so, uh, I, as I start to get up, I'm paralyzed. I can't move. And I, um, I turn to my wife and yell for help. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. And this is one reason, uh, one of three that I'll mention that convinced, convinces me that this was uh, a real event and not just a dream. Uh, because I recall, uh, struggling with every ounce of energy I had because I, I had two small kids in the house. Mm-hmm. And my wife, and so I turned to my wife, and lo and behold, she's unconscious. Um, so the next thing I remember is looking out the bedroom window, a uh, bedroom uh, doorway, and seeing um, a silhouette of a figure in the doorway. Seemed to have a hood on. I couldn't make out the face. Um, or at this point, I, I you know, I. I, I don't have a memory of seeing the face. Um, next thing I recall is um, rising off my bed. Now, uh, some of this uh, is going to sound very strange, and, you know, but this is what uh, happened. Uh, I rise off my bed and I'm floating towards the bedroom window. Now, as I'm floating towards the bedroom window, it seems obvious they're going to take me out the window. And I recall thinking, uh, they don't know how to open that window. I had latched the window. And so uh, after thinking about it later, I, I realized that I thought they were small or childlike creatures because... And again, I don't remember seeing what they look like, but I do remember thinking that they were childlike and would not know how to open the latch of the window um, or would have the strength to do it. Uh, but as I approached the window, uh, they didn't open the window. Are you still there? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, good. We just lost power. Uh, we just lost power again, uh, but the phone's working fine. Gotcha. Uh, so as I approached the window, I remember going right through the window. They didn't open the window. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Uh, I went right through the closed window. Um, uh, after that, uh, I recall being uh, on a table. In uh, probably what was the craft? Uh, I don't remember going up into the craft. I don't remember, you know, seeing the light outside the window, uh, outside of our house. Uh, what I recall next was being a table and being shown a long needle. Uh, it was uh, a good twelve inches long, but it. The, the entity that was showing me this needle was holding it right in front of my eyes so I could you would be sure I saw it and, and 
somehow I was told that this needle was going to be inserted into my groin area, and um, and so they proceeded to do that. They told me it wasn't going to hurt, but it hurt like hell uh, initially and until I complained, and then and that was the second reason I'm convinced this is uh, was not a dream. Uh, as soon as I complained the, the, about the pain. And the pain was excruciating. So that's the second reason. I recall uh, the intensity of that pain. And so um, as soon as I complained about it, the pain went away. So almost immediately the pain was gone. Um, they finished uh, whatever they were doing with me, and uh, uh, two of the beings escorted me over to the, uh, kind of a bench. I sat there for a while. And then I was uh, uh, checked over by another being who came around behind me, and I remember him poking fingers uh, along my spine. Um, at that point, I was escorted by the two beings up to a tunnel, uh, up to a, a bright light, and then back into my bed. Um, uh the next morning, I didn't recall a thing. You know, I, I didn't remember any of it. And um, I didn't even talk to my, my wife, didn't mention it. I didn't talk to her about it. Uh, it was not until approximately, um, I'd say, seven or eight years ago. Uh, you know, after speaking with other abductees uh, uh, and uh, some of these, what I've just told you, started to filter back into my mind. And, uh, of course, I, I uh, went back and forth as to whether this was just a, a bad dream or not. And uh, Until one day, I was talking to my wife. Uh, again, this is about seven years ago. And I, I just happened to say, do you remember one night in Manhattan Beach, where I saw blue light in the living room, and she said, yes, I saw the blue light, too. Oh, my God. So this, and by the way, my wife and I have been married for 45 years, so I, I know her very well. I know she didn't lie about this. Anyway, um, so that was the third reason uh, that finally convinced me. And so I, I started going to uh, hypnotherapy sessions. I've had about four of them so far. And um, and that's where I, I've accumulated uh, this information that I just told you. Um, that's explosive. Folks, our guest tonight, Robert Salas. Aren't you glad you stayed with us? Unidentified UFO phenomenon. How World Governments Have Conspired to Conceal Humanity's Biggest Secret, www.nightfrightshow.com, order this book. I've got a couple of questions for you. Was there any sense of smell when you were on the on the craft? Any sense of smell? Not that I recall, no. Okay, it's just, you know, sometimes when you go to a sanitized room, there's kind of a sense of smell. Yeah. Color was it all bright white or? Uh, it seemed uh, metallic or white. Mm. Yes, white. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, okay. One of the uh, beings uh, seemed to have a kind of a 
white uniform or a white smock. Hmm. Um, when they poked you down the spine, they touched you down the spine, they did so with their fingertips. Were their fingers cold, hot? Uh, rather prickly, pointy, uh, as I recall. Interesting. I don't, I don't remember any particular temperature. Right. Um, Jeez. Um, so, you know, that, that, that pain sensor of the needle going in, it must, it must be terrifying for you to go through these sessions over and over and over again. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it makes me somewhat anxious because I know that there's much more which I, uh, of, of the experience which I have not recovered. Uh, you know, the memory of, of it has not been recovered yet. So, um, I, at this point I felt, uh, I, I've got enough information and, um, not sure I, I, uh, well, I haven't decided whether or not to go forward with more therapy sessions or hypnotherapy sessions. What would you say, you know, there's lots of people listening right now that are still cowering in the shadows. They're afraid to come out and admit mm. not only to other people, but to themselves that they have been abducted. What would you say to them? Well, um, it does change your worldview. So uh, I think it's an individual decision. I think they have to really ponder uh how much more information they'd like to retrieve, um, but um, there are there are groups like in California here we've got a group called Cero, uh, which is run by Yvonne Smith. And you may have heard of her. She's uh, at any rate, uh, they've got support groups for abductees, uh, and I'm sure you can find them on the East Coast there and uh, other sure. places. Yeah. I would contact one of them, maybe, and, and go to one of their meetings. So group therapy is definitely right, so, right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, John Mack, uh, the Harvard professor who had studied the abduction phenomenon, had estimated that there's probably millions of individuals worldwide that have been taken in this way. So uh, another aspect of this phenomenon is that they've obviously got some objective here. Uh, why are they taking so many of us and uh, doing things, uh, experimentation? Uh, Precisely. You, you, you must be clairvoyant because that was one of my next questions for you. <laughs> right, right, right. What's the motive? Um, what's the motive? And um, yeah. there is strong indication that they are producing hybrid children. Uh, hybrid part human, part ET. Oh. Uh, and for what purpose? Who knows? Do you uh, feel that they're amongst this right now, these hybrid children? Uh, it's very likely they could be because they have been doing this for some time. Mm. And um, uh, so Possibly they're producing these hybrid children and, uh, and sending them back to Earth uh, for whatever purpose. So, uh, th again, this is part of the mystery of the phenomenon. I don't want to get into 
speculation too much. Fair uh, enough. But but there is, seems to be enough evidence from uh, people who have been who talked about their experiences of, of um, being shown these hybrids and told that they were theirs, that they should hold them, uh, give them love, uh, things like that. Uh, so I think um, that is happening. But to what end uh, is uh, speculative? To circle back to the international cabal that knows about this. Right. Are they giving them permission or are they just, you know, I'm going back to the X-Files and now are they really working with them or are they being used by the extraterrestrials? Yeah, good question. Uh, again, that's an area of speculation. Uh, um, I, uh, if, if you're asking my opinion, and I think I've, I've uh, expressed this in my book, that there is some sort of communication going on with the cabal. Uh, there has been some sort of interaction. Obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but um, I, uh, the indications are that uh, uh, some beings have been uh, as retrieved during crash retrievals, uh, still alive, and so no doubt there has been some back and forth communication. Maybe those beings lived for some time. And um, is there again, any chance? Is, I was just going to sorry to interrupt you. Is there any chance that because we have acquired alien bodies, is there any chance that we could be the ones that are producing the hybrids? Um, <laughs> uh, are, are you talking for military purposes? Perhaps. Um, Let's put it out there. <laughs> sure. You know, I was going to well, get into I've your drone those, experience I've, too, so, you know, this was a lead I've into heard, that. I, yeah, I've heard those rumors. Uh, these are called uh, military abductions, I guess. Uh, no labs. Uh, but again, this is, to me, it's speculation. I have no um, uh, evidence uh, to support it. But, uh, again, it, uh, I've evolved to the point uh, in this phenomenon where I don't discount much of anything because uh, uh, the phenomenon and different aspects of the phenomenon are so strange. Uh, you can't just out of hand, uh, I don't out of hand discount any possibility. Do you think they're close by or perhaps they're using a portal to travel here? Maybe they're interdimensional? Uh, again, that's an area of speculation. Uh, certainly it would make sense, uh, you know, from our, our rationalization uh, to uh, build bases uh, that you might be implying on the moon, for example, or build bases on Mars and, and use those as, as ways to travel to the Earth, uh, make it a little easier on them. Uh, so, but again, that's speculation. I, I just don't know. So there's something there without question. Um, you know, we've seen the drastic increase in drones 
First, I'd mm-hmm. like to get your opinion of drones. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And also some of your personal experiences with drones, the ones you can talk about. You know, I certainly don't want to put any of our forces at risk. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, I, uh, I I may have mentioned in my book that I did fly drones. Uh, this was 1965 when I was uh, an air, air, air controller. Uh, comp, uh, anyway, I... I I flew a radio-controlled drone uh, as a target, a target drone. I see. And okay. uh, and uh, for um, you know fighter interceptor um, target practice, basically. So that's the only my only experience with flying drones. But um, what do I think of them? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, of course, they are. Uh, this is high tech. Um, there's a question as to um, how accurate they are, of course, um, and how uh, whether they whether ethically I'm sorry eth- ethically ethically they ought to be used um, uh, and the power ought to be vested in government. So uh, I mean, and our president, for example, to uh, uh, to take these drones uh, basically anywhere and take somebody out. Uh, mm-hmm. So there, there are ethical questions involved. Uh, I don't know if you have you have a specific question about it. Uh, no, that's fine. That's you know I I flip both ways on it. Um, yeah. So, because right. you know on one hand I don't want to see any of my friends or family members put in harm's way. Yet on the other hand, I have the same ethical questions that you do. Is this morally, moral, morally responsible? Uh, do we have the right just to use drones? Do we have the right to use robots to do our killing? Yeah, service? exactly. And uh, this this leads into the extreme secrecy, which again I talk about in my book. Uh, there's a lot of activities that our government's involved in uh, that we don't. But we are not able to input uh, to, uh, you know, the public should be able to know, you know, how these decisions are made when we use these drones, uh, by what authority does uh, our president have uh, to use, take out people uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, these are questions that the public should be engaged in, and, and but these are parts of the extreme secrecy of the government. So... Uh, that's one of the major issues we still have. Uh, the governments are extremely secret, and the public just doesn't has no access to really get that information. You know, the president doesn't have the highest secret clearance either, the top topest secret clearance, mm-hmm. and that concerns me as well. Um, you know, going back to the CIA and all some of the dirty things that they've done over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. I was just saying last week in a show that it seems that um, the CIA views the presidency as a short-term period. In other words, four or eight years, but they're going to be around for a career, 20, 30, maybe 40 years. And they're not going to tell the president everything that they're doing for fear of shutting it down and shutting their own careers down. Exactly. exactly. It's frightening. It's absolutely frightening. Exactly. Yeah. So what... Basically, what we've got then is we've got a secret government that people don't know about. I mean, because if they're not informing the president about everything that's going on, 
that there is a secret group within our government that uh, is in the know. And, and these are the career types, uh, career intelligence people, for example, uh, uh, that, that know where all the bodies are buried and they're uh, not about to talk. You mentioned General LeMay before. Um, you know, he wanted to go in uh, for strike during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He thought that was yeah. the best way to... Uh, he felt that it was survivable, that if they hit right. Russia first and, and Cuba first, uh, right. America could survive a nuclear uh, war, that they could take out enough missiles in order to right. survive. And um, JFK was terrified, and so was Sorensen as they sat around the table. They just couldn't believe this was coming from the leader of SAC. Uh, it was, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, a suicidal thought. Well, in fact, um, just about every president up to, uh, I don't include President Obama in this, but just about every other president has had either his advisors suggest the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons during the conflict, or uh, even presidents have considered it. Um, uh, and I think I've, I've got that itemized in my book uh, when those things happen. When you were writing your... Please go ahead. I said that is frightening. That, uh, uh, the military advisors, for example, during Vietnam uh, suggested to Lyndon Johnson that... Uh, uh, they, they use nuclear weapons, both uh, against China and, and against the, um, the North Vietnamese. And uh, Nixon was pushing for that as well. Right. Yeah, the same right. thing. He wanted to end the war. And uh, actually, Eisenhower, I think it was Operation, what the hell was the name of the Vulcan? Was that right? It started with a V. I can't remember in the 50s. He wanted to use use nuclear weapons too because folks you have to realize that these guys were staunch brave soldiers getting us through the second world war and they were still you know what's the old adage that they always say you always fight the next war with last with the last war's tactics and that always gets you to miss until you catch up and this is exactly what they were trying to do fight the cold war uh, based on what they had learned in the second world war and it was a new, virtually a new frontier, no pun intended, on the Kennedy administration, because one nuclear weapon is it's uh, it's extinction, it's virtually extinction. Right. Well, uh, people like General LeMay, you mentioned LeMay. Uh, of course, he was responsible for the firebombing uh, in Japan. That's right. And also, uh, and also the um, um, bombing in Germany. Uh, Dresden. Uh, but Dresden, yeah, where they just wanted to completely destroy everything. Uh, and that's how they thought they would demoralize the enemy. So uh, I have no doubt that uh, LeMay probably suggested that uh, nuclear weapons could be used and uh, we'd come out ahead somehow. You know, you've got this wonderful perspective, and I love it. Um, you're a very balanced guy. And you have a great perspective on, on geopolitical events that are happening right now. How do we balance the real threats? How do we assess the real threats, the real bad guys against those that are perhaps manufactured to make us, uh, put us in fear? And I'll give you a good example. ISIS, I think they're a real threat 
How do we balance that against something that might be manufactured just to keep us in fear? Hmm. Yeah, no question. ISIS is a real threat. Uh, they've taken a lot of territory in Iraq. Mm. Uh, and so um, uh, we, we do have to confront them, uh, and we have to confront them militarily. And I think the same thing with with Russia. I hate to say it, but uh, we're going to have to confront Russia militarily. Now, that doesn't mean we uh, send troops over there to Ukraine, but uh, what it does mean is, is, is get an alliance together, uh, like a NATO alliance of sorts, um, and show force. And it's just like you would do with any other bully. Um, you know, a school bully. Uh, uh, in order to, you have to confront bullies uh, and show force in order to get them to back down. Um, Put them uh, in a corner and give them a timeout. Yeah, whatever. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, Putin has proved himself to be nothing more than a, uh, a thug. Very and, much so. Uh, Very much so. Yeah. But there must be people that, uh, you know, I go back to the missile crisis all the time because uh, I spent an afternoon uh, with, with Ted Sorensen in his, his apartment. And um, he said, you know, there's always somebody, some type of moderate that's in the background that you can talk to and you can utilize and leverage that. And I was wondering, uh, and build common things that you can build towards together, like the... Uh, mm-hmm the dismantling mm-hmm. of the nuclear arms race, uh, also mm-hmm. uh, the space the space thing that we finally got together that is, unfortunately, NASA has canceled now with Russia. Do you think a common enemy like ISIS, we know of the Chechenian Muslims as well, the extremists there, do you think that could be a common em- enemy that could unite East and West as it did during World War II? Uh, yes. Yes, I, I do. I, I think uh, you know the West has to unite against uh, the extremist element elements in the world because uh, ISIS shows uh, the fact that ISIS exists shows that these extremist groups will coalesce. They'll come together, uh, and the last thing we want is an Islamic state uh, bent on uh, destroying the West. Because they will acquire nuclear weapons. Absolutely, you know, there's no question about it. Well, and they'll just take can, over Pakistan. Can, yeah, we can't allow that. We no, just okay. can't allow that. Yeah. So yeah, we've got to confront them. We've got to do it united and uh, and go after those guys. Um, so again, I, I'm not a uh, I'm not a pro war guy necessarily, but Indeed. in this case, I. I I think we need to confront those guys militarily. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I really do. Yeah, we got to take the raison d'être away and uh, school, school, schools, without question. We've got to educate folks and bring them into the 21st century and get them out of uh, the 8th century and the 7th century. Uh, folks, we're speaking with a great guy tonight, Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon is the name of his book. Robert Salas is our guest. You've got to get his books because he's a heavy thinker, folks. Faded Giant is another book he's written. And easy way to get both his books, 
www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. As always, that'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. What's the global climate now? Are you concerned for the future? I don't know if you have kids, if you have grandkids. Mm. Are you concerned for their future? Absolutely. Um, Does this this make you afraid? Because uh, I'll ask you this right out. In many abduction cases, it follows through the family. Are you afraid for your child, your children? Are you afraid also for your grandchildren? They may be abducted. Yes. Um, I don't have any grandchildren yet, uh, but <laughs> I do have children. Like I said, uh, the incident that happened in Manhattan Beach, I did. I, I had small children in the house. Um, whether or not they have been taken, that we really haven't gotten into that, but it is highly possible that they were taken. Uh, many children have been taken. Um, uh, some claim to have been taken to some sort of School on the craft where they were um, taught in uh, paranormal things like uh, kine- um, telekinesis, uh, right? Uh, yeah, things like that. Uh, so yeah, they are taking children, no question. A lot. Some of these uh, experiences uh, uh, talk about being taken from childhood into adulthood. Um, uh, now. So the question of fear, uh, I don't like to dwell on fear. Um, uh, it's really a question of uh, trying to figure out what what's going on, what the objectives are, and yes. what what can we do about it. Um, but that, that's another reason for a disclosure, um, public disclosure, so that we can all decide what, what we need to do about this. Well, you certainly moved towards that, uh, you know, September 27th, 2007, at the National Press Club. You organized a, a terrific press conference. Can you walk us through that a bit for the folks that are unaware of that event? Oh, the one in 2010. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I said 20, 2007. Two things I need to do more often, folks, and that is drink more coffee during the show so I can pronounce names and put my damn glasses on instead of at the top of my head. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> well, I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been at the National Press Club many times. Uh, yeah, what, uh, and again, 2007 and uh, in 2010, um, uh, uh, Robert Hastings and I organized a um, press conference where we invited uh, uh, the military uh, officers and um, who had had experiences uh, in the field with UFOs, and uh, we got them to write um, uh, affidavits, signed affidavits, uh, stamped and signed by another public, their statements, uh, which to a man say that UFOs, they encountered UFOs in the field uh, at military bases, and so those gentlemen spoke publicly about that. Uh, we did get pretty good press coverage. And by the way, if your listeners can go to YouTube and uh, and hear those testimonies uh, of those officers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then again, you know about the um, uh, citizens' hearing on disclosure in 2013. 
uh, I, I went and testified again with mm-hmm. uh, three other uh, ex-officers and airmen who had had experiences, uh, actually recruited them to come to Washington, D.C. and talk about this publicly in front of uh, a panel of ex-congressmen, uh, U.S. congressmen. Were they receptive in general, Robert? Absolutely. They uh, were skeptical at first, but by the end of the conference, uh, they were absolutely convinced that this was a reality and that I would be disclosure. Did any one of those folks come forward with their own experiences? Uh, are you talking about the ex-congressman? Yeah. Well, I didn't hear that. No, I didn't okay, not. I was just curious, because sometimes that happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, these are efforts, uh, again, uh, that I wish the public would focus on the fact that, like I said, we we have uh, a lot of ex-military people that have come forward now, and they've signed affidavits, in other words, uh, you know, they're telling the truth, um, and yet... Uh, the mainstream press doesn't seem to get it. Uh, no kidding. Listen, I, I've got. I told you about the Ted Sorensen thing. Sorensen uh, confirmed conspiracy, not a coup d'état, but conspiracy. I've tried every mainstream outlet in the world, and I've got nobody mm-hmm. to pay. And that's from Ted Sorensen. This isn't from mm-hmm. you know some guy way down the line. This is the guy that wrote the letter to Khrushchev to get him to back down, and I can't get anybody to touch it for fear that I guess they'll be considered a loopy uh, kind of person or something. I don't know. So I understand exactly what's going on, for sure. Yeah. What would you like to see happen? Uh, do you think a congressional investigation into your event? I don't think they're going to touch Roswell at this point, but I'm thinking something mm-hmm. that challenges uh, national security, as your event did, I think that deserves a congressional investigation, don't you? Yeah. um, I'll tell you, after uh, there was a conference in 2001, right? Right. The original disclosure conference that Stephen Greer organized. At at that time, after we spoke, and we got great press coverage of that, after we spoke, we actually walked through the halls of uh, Congress and literally stopped congressmen in the hallways and asked if we could speak to them about the UFO issue. We did get a few of those congressmen to actually sit down and and listen to what we had to say. Um, And we had at least one or two promise that they would follow up on this. Well, that was 2001. It was in the spring of 2001. And, of course, on September 11th, course. we had the September 11th incident. And so all bets were off on UFOs. Yep. Uh, so our, our next objective here is to get back into those offices and see if we can get them to listen to us. And, uh, yeah, I think the timing could be right on that. We'll make that effort again. Yeah. yeah, by the way, folks, uh, we're coming up to the uh, the anniversary. 
of 9-11. And I just want to tell you, in the archives, I had interviewed Colonel Robert Darling, who was in the White House bunker that day, taking orders from Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice. Give it a listen. It's well worth it. It's historical. Uh, just as our guest tonight has been um, first-person witness to an incredible event that took place March 24, 1967, when he was uh, second in command down below, 60 feet below the surface in uh, nuclear-proof, what we'd hope a nuclear-proof little bunker himself, and 10 nuclear weapons he was in charge of releasing went non-operational. And what is ominous, as I said in the beginning of the show, reports of UFOs had been flooding in. And uh, folks, I would just want to thank you all for listening. Our guest tonight has been Robert Salas. Thank you, Robert. Very kind of you to come on. You bet, Brad. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely enjoyed it. Kelly Logue, as always, thank you, my friend, for uh, helping out with the website. This show could not operate without him. I'm Brent Holland.